Welcome, everybody, to this uh, tribute event to Helen Dunmore. We have to thank the Arts Council, Arts Council England, for sponsoring this event and the whole festival. So thank you very much to the Arts Council. For this event, we're going to have um, a couple of films of Helen Dunmore reading her poems and ten poets who are either taking part in the festival or they're from the Ledbury area are going to read poems of Helen's that mean a lot to them personally. And they'll probably say a few things about um, the poems as well before they, they read them. Uh, Julie Myerson is on the programme as taking part in this event. She was a great friend of Helen's and unfortunately she is not able to be here. Um, but we do have more footage of Helen herself reading, so uh, there is that sort of re part replacement for Julie not being here. As you probably know, I'm Neil Astley. I'm editor of Blood Axe Books. I started Blood Axe Books in 1978, and Helen was one of the first poets I published and was a great friend over many years. I'm going to start off by reading something I was asked to write after her death, after she won the Costa Book of the Year Award. Um, so when I tried talking up off the cuff about it last year's festival, it was, uh, I, I, it was hard to be, fight back the tears. So, um, I first met Helen in 1977 when I was working on Stand magazine, which had published a few of her poems. She came up to Newcastle to be interviewed for a vacant co-editor's post, and we took her on outing to Holy Island as a way of getting to know her. Very wisely, as it turned out, I left the magazine shortly afterwards, she decided not to take the job, which would have involved her moving up from Bristol. She'd recently returned from Finland, where she'd lived for two years after graduating from York University, and was wanting to devote as much time as possible to her writing. She would work as an office temp for two months, then reserve the next two months just for her writing, then earn enough from office work to spend another two months just writing. Some of her early poems and stories drew on her time in Finland, as well as celebrating the lives of women. This was the period of the Greenham Common Protests, which Helen supported, and the first magazine to publish her work was Spare Rib. We kept in touch, and when I set up Blood Axe in 1978, I asked her if she'd send me the manuscript of her first collection once it was ready. This took a few years. She didn't want to rush the book. We had the core of a manuscript, and she sent me new poems as she wrote them. In the meantime, she'd met and married her husband, Frank Charnley, become a stepmother to his young son, Ollie, and soon she had her own son, Patrick, followed much later by a daughter, Tess. Family life and motherhood started to figure in the new work as the first collection came together. When the Apple IV was launched at Newcastle's Morden Tower in 1983, she had just turned 30 and was training to be a nursery teacher, and that's actually a picture of Helen at the launch of that book in 1983 with someone uh, who looks a bit like me, uh, disguised, uh, standing over her, introducing her at that launch of her first book. Um, very few poetry collections by women were published at that time, and Helen's ability to combine the domestic with the universal in poems remarkable for their rhythmical fluency and sensuousness was an influence on other poets of her generation. I wasn't surprised when she turned to fiction, her poetry being so strong in narrative, each poem telling its own story, and I was delighted to see how much her prose was illuminated by her beautiful use of language. Each novel was as much a pleasure to read as her poetry, and I loved savouring both. 
Despite her growing success as a novelist and children's writer, Helen continued to see her poetry as central to her writing. Every few years, she'd set aside time to work on a new poetry collection, sending me a manuscript once she'd accumulated 30 to 40 poems she was happy with. And over the course of the next year, or sometimes longer, she'd send me more poems, sometimes just one, other times two or three, which were thematically linked. The collections were always completed like this, originally with single poems arriving by post, then later, one or two at a time by email. And it was lovely to keep in touch with her in this way. I never needed to give much feedback to the poems, but whatever I did have to offer, she always considered carefully. With Inside the Wave, the process was the same, but the effect was alarmingly different. In April 2016, she delivered the initial manuscript, a smaller collection, then entitled Counting Backwards, written while undergoing cancer treatment, thought to have been successful at that point. As with her just-written novel Birdcage Walk, much of the new work, but by not means all, related to mortality and death, to what and whom we leave behind. Over the next few months, eight more poems followed by email. Then in August, she phoned with the devastating news <coughs> that a previously undetected growth had been discovered and too late. She'd be given less than a year to live, but she felt some consolation in having completed what would be her final novel and final poetry collection. She continued to add new poems to the collection using the notes function on her iPhone to write from bed and then emailing them to me. The eight poems which completed the collection were among the most heartbreaking. My life's stem was cut. The poem she wrote in response to her terminal diagnosis brought tears to my eyes and uh, Leslie is going to try and read it later. Then she reordered the, poet, the book to accommodate the last poems, commenting, It's exciting to see the collection typeset. It gives the poems that slight distance from me, as if they were ready to go out into the world. I'm so glad you think the order works and that the poems reflect that sense of where the underworld meets the human world. Inside the Way it achieved its power and greatness as a poetry collection, largely because of how the manuscript was transformed in the course of Helen's final year when a third of the poems, including some of those which readers have connected with most deeply, were added, not in chronological order, but placed where they strengthen the overall coherence of a book, which is as much about celebrating life as facing death. She wanted the book to be read as an organically whole collection concerned with all areas of life and being. A month after its publication, Helen told me, she was, quote, living very quietly now during this last stage of my illness, cared for by hospice at home. They are fantastic. And she sent me her final poem, <coughs> Hold Out Your Arms, written on, the on her phone the day before, on the 25th of May, 2017. The book had sold out in a month, <coughs> and she readily agreed to the poem being added to the first reprint, which we were able to make available shortly after her death in June of last year. I've often found that the best writers can be the least pushy and sometimes even the least confident of new work. I think that Helen always knew that she was a fine, I would say wonderful poet, but she could be quite tentative with new poems, not lacking in confidence, but perhaps worrying that her absorption in her fiction was leaving the poetry out on a limb. Submitting the malarkey anonymously to the National Poetry Competition in 2010 achieved exactly what she was hoping for, validation from the poetry community in being judged by fellow poets who didn't know who'd written the winning poems. She would have been both delighted 
and bemused had she known that Inside the Wave would win a Costa Book Award, something she never achieved with any of her brilliant novels, not even The Siege, a magisterial book which was shortlisted but unaccountably failed to pick up the Whitbread Novel Award in 2001. Yet readers, being read, mattered to her far more than prizes. What she would have appreciated most about having Inside the Wave made Costa Book of the Year would be that so many of the people who loved her fiction would come to know her poetry as well. And to borrow a comment she made about my anthology, Staying Alive, it's a book for people who know they love poetry and for people who think they don't. So that, that's my introduction to, to, to this event. Um, we're now going to start off by playing a film which my wife Pamela Robertson-Pierce made of Helen uh, in 2007 at her home in Bristol, in which she reads um, half a dozen of some of her best-known poems, and then we'll move on to, to the readings by today's readers. Wild Strawberries. What I get, I bring home to you. A dark handful, sweet-edged, dissolving in one mouthful. I bother to bring them for you, though they're so quickly over, pulpless, sliding to juice, a grainy rub on the tongue, and the taste's gone. If you remember, we were in the woods at wild strawberry time, and I was making a basket of dock leaves to hold what you'd picked. But the cold leaves unplatted themselves, and slid apart, and again unplatted themselves until I gave up and let wild strawberries out of your hands for sweetness. I lipped at your palm, the little salt edge there, the tang of money you'd handled. As we stayed in the wood, hidden, we heard the sound system below us calling the winners at Chepstow, faint as the breeze turned. The sun came out on us. The shade blotches went hazel. We heard names bubble like stock doves over the woods, as jockeys in stained silks gentled those sweat-dark, shuddering horses down to the walk. When you've got... When you've got the plan of your life matched to the time it will take, but you just want to press, shift, break, and print over and over. This is not what I was after. This is not what I was after. When you've finally stripped out the house with its iron-cold fireplace, its mouldings, its mortgage, its single-skin walls, but you want to write in the plaster, this is not what I was after. When you've got the rainbow-clad baby in his state-of-the-art pushchair, but he arches his back at you and pulps his activity centre, and you just want to whisper, this is not what I was after. When the vacuum seethes and whines in the lounge and the waste disposal unit blows, when tenors settle in your account like snow hitting a stove, when you get a chat from your spouse about marriage and personal growth. When a wino comes to sleep on your porch, on your citizen's charter, and you know a hostel's opening soon, but your headache's closer, and you really just want to torch the bundle of rags and newspaper, 
and you'll say to the newspaper, this is not what we were after. This is not what we were after. Candle poem after Saad Yusuf. A candle for the ship's breakfast, eaten while moving southward through mild grey water, with the work all done. A candle for the house, seen from outside, the voices and shadows of the moment before coming home. A candle for the noise of aeroplanes going elsewhere, passing over, for delayed departures, embarrassed silences between people who love one another. A candle for sandwiches in service stations at 4am and the taste of coffee from plastic cups, thickened with sugar to keep us going. A candle for the crowd around a coffin and the terrible depth it has to fall into the grave dug for everyone, the deaths for decades to come, our deaths. A candle for going home and feeling hungry after saying we would never be able to eat the ham, the fruitcake, those carefully buttered buns. City Lilacs In crack-haunted alleys, overhangs, plots of sour earth that pass for gardens, in the space between wall and wheelie bin, where men with mobiles make urgent conversation, where bare-legged girls shiver in April winds. Where a new mother stands on her doorstep and blinks at the brightness of morning so suddenly born. In all these places, the city lilacs are pushing their cones of blossom into the spring to be taken by the warm wind. Lilac, like love, makes no distinction. It will open for anyone. Even before love knows that it is love, lilac knows it must blossom. In crack-haunted alleys, in overhangs, in somebody's front garden abandoned to crisp packets and cans, on landscape motorway roundabouts, in the depths of parks where men and women are lost in transactions of flesh and cash, where mobiles ring and the deal is done, here the city lilacs release their sweet, wild perfume, then bow down, heavy with rain. Glad of these times. Driving along the motorway, swerving the packed lanes, I am glad of these times. Because I did not die in childbirth, because my children will survive me, I am glad of these times. I am not hungry, I do not curtsy, I lock my door with my own key, and I am glad of these times. Glad of central heating and cable TV, glad of email and keyhole surgery, glad of power showers and washing machines, glad of polio inoculations, glad of three weeks paid holiday, glad of smart cards and cashback, glad of twenty types of yoghurt, glad of cheap flights to Prague, glad that I work. I do not breathe pure air or walk green lanes, see darkness, hear silence, make music, tell stories, tend the dead in their dying, tend the newborn in their birthing, 
tend the fire in its breathing. But I am glad of my times, these times, the age we feel in our bones, our rage of tire music, speed annulling the peasant graves of all my ancestors. Glad of my hands on the wheel and the cloud of grit as it rises where JCBs move, move motherly, widening the packed motorway. Dolphins whistling. Yes, we believed that the oceans were endless, surging with whales, serpents and mermaids, demon-haunted and full of sweet voices to lure us over the edge of the world. We were conquerors, pirates, explorers, vagabonds, war makers, sea rovers. We ploughed the waves' furrow, made maps that led others to the sea's harvest. And sometimes we believed we heard dolphins whistling. Through the wine-dark waters we heard dolphins whistling. We were restless and the oceans were endless rich in cod and silver-scaled herring, so thick with pilchard we dipped in our buckets and threw the waste onto the fields to rot. We were mariners, fishers of Iceland, Newfoundlanders, fortune-makers, sea rovers. We ploughed the waves' furrow and earned a harvest, hungrily trawling the broad waters. And sometimes we believed we heard dolphins whistling through blue-green depths, we heard dolphins whistling. The catch was good, and the oceans were endless. So we fed them with runoff and chemical rivers, pear-fished them, scoured the seabed for pearls, and searched the deep where the sperm whale plays. We were ambergris merchants, fish farmers, cod-bank strippers, coral crushers, reef poisoners. We ploughed the sea's furrow and seized our harvest, although we had to go far for it, for the fish grew small and the whales were strangers, coral was grey and the cod banks empty, algae bloomed and the pilchards vanished, while the hewer's lookout was sold for a chalet, and the dolphins called their names to one another through the dark spaces of the water, as mothers call their children at nightfall and grow fearful for an answer. We were conquerors, pirates, explorers, vagabonds, war makers, sea rovers. We ploughed the waves furrow, drew maps to lead others to the sea's harvest. And we believed that the oceans were endless. And we believed we could hear the dolphins whistling. You hear the leaves, it was very marked, the noise of the leaves. Suddenly there was a lot of wind, yeah. wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. But the wind, it, they're really moving and I love that mm. noise. Well, we're going to start from Helen's first book, The Apple Four, with a reading uh, by Sarah James of domestic poem. I was only eight when this was published in 1983, so a good 20 years before I was even thinking about poetry myself. Um, and I've chosen this poem because Helen Dunmore's work has been inspirational and crucial in paving the way 
for future generations of female poets like myself. Uh, and I think this poem is one of many that show why. Domestic poem. So, how decisive a house is. Quilted, a net of blood and green droops on repeated actions at nightfall. A bath run through the wall comforts the older boy sleeping, meshed in the odours of breath and cowpaw. While in the maternity hospital, ancillaries rinse out the blood bottles. The feel and the spore of baby's sleep stays here. Later, some flat-packed plastic swells to a parachute of oxygen, holding the sick through their downspin. Now I am well enough. I iron and place the folded sheets in bags from which I shall take them, identical, after the birth of my child. And now the house closes us, close on us. Like fruit, we rest in its warm branches. And though it's time for the child to come, nobody knows it. The night passes while I sleepwalk the summer heat. Months shunt me, and I bring you like an old engine hauling the blue spaces that flash between track and train time. Mist rises, smelling of petrol's burnt offerings. Newborn, oily and huge. The lorries drum on Stokes Croft. Out of the bathroom mirror, the sky is blue and pale as a Chinese mountain. And I breathe in. It's time to go now. I take nothing but breath thinned. A blown out dandelion globe might choose my laundered body to grow in. And now Ruth Stacey is going to read another poem from the Apple Four, Pharaoh's Daughter. Sorry, I'm very short. <laughs> I think it's okay. Can you hear me? Yep, excellent. Um, when I was asked to do this and I was told I could choose any poem, I found that incredibly difficult because I love so many, almost all of Helen's work, including her novels, and I was incredibly sad about her passing. But one thing I did love about Helen was how she used um, history within her work. So this is one of the poems that does that. Pharaoh's Daughter. The slowly moving river in summer where bulrushes, mallow and water forget-me-not slip to their still faces. A child's body joins their reflections. His plastic boat drifts into midstream, and, I, and though I lean down to brown water that still smells of peppermint, I can't get at it. My willow branch flails and pushes the boat outwards, he smiles quickly and tells me it doesn't matter. My feet grip in the mud and mash blue flowers under them. 
Then we go home, masking with summer days the misery that has haunted a whole summer. I think once of the Egyptian woman who drew a baby from the bulrushes, hearing it mew in the damp, odorous growth holding its cradle. There's nothing here but the boat caught by its string. And through this shimmering day I struggle, drawn down by the webbed years, the child's life cradled within. Um, I think three of our poets wanted to read the next poem, which shows how strongly they connected with it. But it's going to be read by Sarah Jane Arbery, and it's a poem called Safe Period, uh, from Short Days, Long Nights, published in 1991. I'm glad I'm the person reading this poem. <laughs> um, I first heard Helen reading her poetry when I attended an event in Bristol um, as part of a tour launching this anthology by Bloodaxe, 60 Women Poets. Um, the date was actually the 11th of October, 1993, and I know this because I wrote the date in the front cover when I bought this book. Um, I uh, remember Helen reading this poem, and she introduced it by saying that the poem concerns a couple, uh, a man and a woman, who are in a sexual relationship, but they're not wanting children, at least not yet. And so the poem explores the implications of this and the considerations that this leads to for both of them, particularly for the woman. Um, our paths crossed a few times in Bristol um, since, this, since I saw her reading, and um, I was very lucky enough to work with Helen on uh, quite a few sort of poetry-based projects and events in Bristol. So this poem is called Safe Period. Your dry voice from the centre of the bed asks, is it safe? And I answer for the days as if I owned them. Practised at counting, I rock the two halves of the month like a cradle. The days slip over their style and expect nothing. They are just days, and we are at it again, thwarting souls from the bodies they crave. They'd love to get into this room under the yellow counterpane we've turned to make a child's cuddly. They'd love to slide into the sheets between soft, much-washed flannelette fleece. They'd love to be here in the moulded spaces between us, where there is no room, but we don't let them. They fly about gustily, noisy as our own children. Another writer who worked with Helen um, in the 1990s was um, Philip Gross, our next reader. And he's going to read um, from her children's poetry book, Secrets, which came out in 1994. Snow Queen. Long, long have I looked for you. Snow shoeing across the world, across the wild white world. With my heart in my pocket and my black greased boots to keep the cold out, past cathedrals and pike marshes, 
I've tracked you so long, I've looked for you. In your star-blue palace, I wandered and couldn't find you in your winter garden. I picked icicles. My fingers burned on your grate, on your gate of freezing iron. I have the pain of it yet on my palm. Through clanging branches and black frost fall, I dare not call. So I slide above worlds of ice, where the fishes kiss and the drowned farmer whips on his cart through bubbles of glass. And his dogs prance at the tail end, frozen with one leg cocked and their yellow urine twined in thickets of ice. I stamp my boot and the ice booms. I have looked so long. I am wild and white as your creatures. I might be one of your own. I'm grateful to be able to read more than one thing from this book, Secrets, which was born in the years when Helen and I were, were working with each other in schools and, 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 and workshops. We first met not as writers, but as parents at the school gates in about 1986, and we recognised something. And one thing we recognised was that either working with or writing for young people, we knew it must never be less. It must never be toned down or tamed or in any way smaller than, than work which was aimed at adults. Most of all, those secrets, what that word stands for is a child's birthright of having an inner life which is both serious and deep and need not be performed on Facebook or whatever at all and might be, be shared only with the friends you really trust or perhaps in a poem. This is Lemon Soul. I lay and heard voices spin through the house and there were five minutes to run for the snow-slewed school bus. My mother said they had caught it as she wiped stars from the window. The frost mended its web and she put her snow-cool hand to my forehead. The baby peeked round her skirts trying to make me laugh but I said my head hurt and shut my eyes on her and coughed. My mother kneeled until her shape hid the whole world. She buffed up my pillows as she held me. Could you eat a lemon sole, she asks me. It was her favourite. She would buy it as a treat for us. I only liked the sound of it. Slim, holy and expensive, but I said, yes, I'll eat it. And I shut my eyes and sailed out on the noise of sunlight, white sheets and lemon sole, softly being cut up. (laughs) 
Philip mentioned Helen's uh, attitude to writing for children, and it was very much symptomatic of that, that, in fact, when we published her selected poems out of the blue, um, she included a whole selection of her children's poems in that. And um, just so you know, at the back, we've got copies of Inside the Wave and also the Malarkey, her previous collection. But her earlier work is currently unavailable, but we will be publishing a new retrospective covering all of her work, to be called Counting Backwards, the title that she was thinking of using for Inside the Wave, and that should be coming out next February. So we move on in her work now to 1994, and Angela France is going to read the title poem from Recovering a Body. I came back to poetry after a long break when life got in the way in my 40s in the early 90s, and this was the first poem I came across of Helen's in an anthology, and it stayed with me because of its ideas and because of its layers and because it had so much to teach me about what I wanted to do with poetry. Three ways of recovering a body. By chance, I was alone in my bed the morning I woke to find my body had gone. It had been coming I'd cut off my hair in sections so each of you would have something to remember. Then my nails worked loose from their beds of oystery flesh. Who was it got them? One night I slipped out of my skin. It lolloped, hooked to my heels, hurting. I had to spray on more scent so you could find me in the dark. I was going so fast. One of you begged for my ears because you could hear the sea in them. First, I planned to steal myself back. I was a mist on thighs, belly and hips. I'd slept with so many men. I was with you in the ash-haunted stations of Poland. I was with you on that grey plaza in Berlin while you wolfed three donuts without stopping, thinking yourself alone. Soon, I recovered my lips. By waiting behind the mirror while you shaved, you pouted. I peeled away kisses like wax, no longer warm to the touch. Then I flew off. Next, I decided to become a virgin. Without a body, it was easy to make up a new story. In seven years, every invisible cell would be renewed and none of them would have touched any of you. I went to a cold lake, to a grey lichened island. I was gold in the wallet of the water. I was known to the inhabitants who were in love with the coveted whisper of my virginity. All too soon they were bringing me coffee and perfume, cash under stones. I could really do something for them. Thirdly, I tried marriage to a good husband who knew my past but forgave it. I believed in the power of his penis to smoke out all those men so that bit by bit my body service would resume. Although for a while I'd be the one woman in the world who was only present in the smile of her vagina. He stroked the air where I might have been. I turned to the mirror and saw mist gather as if someone lived in the glass. Recovering, I breathed to myself, hold on, I'm coming.
Some of you may have seen some of the interviews that Helen's family gave after she, her book won the Costa Book of the Year with her daughter, Tess, now in her early 20s. Now, Ursula Owen is going to read a poem that Helen Dunwall wrote for Tess before she was born called All the Things You Are Not Yet, from Bestiary, 1997. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I'm neither a poet, uh, nor have I ever met Helen Dunmore. Um, I'm a publisher. I was one of the people who started Virago Press, and I always longed to publish her novels, but somebody got there first. This is a poem, as uh, Neil said, written for Tess before she was born. All the things you are not yet. <clears throat> Tonight there's a crowd in my head. All the things you are not yet. You are words without paper. Pages sighing in summer forests. Gardens where builders stub out their rubble and plastic oozes its sweat. All the things you are, you are not yet. Not yet the lonely window in midwinter with the wine of tea on an empty stomach. Not yet the heating you can't afford and must wait for, tamping a coin in on each hour. Not the gorgeous shush of restaurant doors and their interiors, always so much smaller. Not the smell of the newsprint, the blue on your fingertips, your fame. Not yet. The love you will have for winter Pearmans and Chanel number no. five, and then your being unable to buy both washing machine and computer when your baby's due to be born, and my voice saying, I'll get you one, and you frowning, frowning at walls and surfaces which are not mine. All this, not yet. Give me your hand, that small one, without a mark of work on it. The one that's strange to the washing up bowl and doesn't know fairy liquid from whiskey. Not yet the moment of your arrival in taxis, at daring destinations, or your being alone at stations with the skirts of your fashionable clothes flapping and no money for the telephone. Not yet the moment when I can give you nothing so well folded it, fills in an it fits in an envelope. A dull letter you won't reread. Not yet the moment of your assimilation in that river flowing westward. River of clothes, of dreams, an accent unlike my own, saying to someone I don't know, darling. Next, Shauna Darling-Robertson is going to read I've Been Thinking of You So Loudly from The Malarkey, which came out in 2012. I have been thinking of you so loudly that perhaps as you walked down the street, 
you turned on hearing your name's decibels sing from pavement, hoardings, and walls, until, like glass from last night's disasters, your name shattered. Soon, sweepers will come, and all my love of you will vanish, as if it had never been. Meanwhile, hurry, before lateness catches you. Run until the wind blows out your coat. Don't stand irresolute, like me, thinking too loudly. Our next reader is Cathy Pimlott, who's going to read another poem from the Malarkey, The Kingdom of the Dead. Um, I first encountered Helen's poetry in the 1960s because we went to the same school and she was the year above me and um, I found her poems in the school magazines. But I wouldn't impose that on anybody or betray her by showing them. And I've chosen this one because that school was in Nottingham and every year Nottingham has a big fair called Goose Fair and Carter's Steam Fair is part of that fair. The Kingdom of the Dead. The kingdom of the dead is like an owl in the heart of the city, hunting at the down's margin. Over Carter's steam fare, over the illicitly parked cars where lovers tighten and quicken, it glides with a tilt of the wing. The kingdom of the dead is like a mouse in the owl's eye, a streak of brown at the down's margin. Under the bright hooves of Carter's horses, it hides this mouse, a drop of water which flows in its terror into a beer can. The kingdom of the dead is like the boot of a boy in the bliss of fair time, rucking the grass at the down's margin. Carter's is turning out now. He runs in and out of the horses and kicks the beer can into the touch of heaven. And now we'll have two poems from Inside the Wave before we hear from Helen to finish with. First of all, Leslie Ingram is going to read My Life's Stem Was Cut. I chose this poem because it makes me cry. So I've been trying to desensitize myself from it all week. Shall we see how we go, shall we? My Life's Stem Was Cut. My life's stem was cut, but quickly, lovingly, I was lifted up. I heard the rush of the tap, and I was set in water, in the blue vase, beautiful in lip and curve. And here I am, opening one petal as the tea calls. I wait while the sun moves and the bees finish their dancing, I know I am dying, but why not keep flowering as long as I can from my cut stem? Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Well done. And now Adam Munter is going to read Helen's last poem, 
hold out your arms. Can I just say something that touched me enormously? Uh, Leslie, who's just read her poem, the reason, or one of the reasons that she finds it so difficult, she says, is because she has never cut a flower in her life, because she can't. So, I didn't know Helen. I read her since the 60s. Peasant ancestors, secrets, honesty, wiping stars from the window, touch of heaven, birthing, dying, the sea in her ears, still hearing dolphins whistling, body service, the smile of her vagina, a crowd in her head of all the things you are not yet. She was all these things, but for me, she was a poet and an artist and a creative genius, and she was a woman and a mother and all those other things that Neil has told us about. So I'm honoured to be here, and here it is. Hold out your arms. <laughs> Death, hold out your arms. Embrace me. Give me your motherly caress. Through all this suffering, you have not forgotten me. You are the bearded iris that bakes its rhizomes beside the wall. Your scent flushes with loveliness, sherbet, pure iris, lovely and intricate. I am the child who stands by the wall, not much taller than the iris. The sun covers me, the day waits for me in my funny dress. Death, you heap into my arms a basket of unripe damsons, red crisscross straps that button up behind me. I don't know about school. My knowledge is for papery bud covers, tall stems and brown, bees touching here and there delicately before a swerve to the sun. Death stoops over me, her long skirts slide. She knows I'm shy. Even the puffed sleeves on my white blouse embarrass me. But she will pick me up and hold me so no one can see me. And I will scrub my hair into hers. There the iris increases, note by note, as the wall gives back heat. Death, there's no need to ask. A mother will always lift a child, as a rhizome must lift up a flower. So you settle me, my arms twining, thighs gripping your hips where the swell of you is, as you push back my hair, which could do with a comb. But never mind, you murmur. We're nearly there. So could you please thank again um, our readers who have read... Uh, Helen's poems before we hear from Helen because at the end um, you're going to hear from Helen actually reading in this venue in 2012 um, so I think we should applaud Helen at the end when the 2012 audience applauds Helen I think that would be a lovely time for you to join in with the 2012 audience and applaud her reading which I'm about to play you but before I do that please can you thank those wonderful readings by the readers and poets that we've had here today
Many apologies again for, for not remembering Julie Myerson, who, who would have been here. Um, also, one last piece of housekeeping. Do uh, fill in the audience finder forms. Very helpful to the festival to have your feedback. So thank you very much for that. And I'd like Helen to finish the event. A fantastic short film about this woman who was 103 at the time. And she survived the Nazi concentration camps because of her ability as a pianist. And she still played from nine to one every day. Um, and I just wrote a very short poem about her. Pianist 103 looks at the morning where she will play from nine to one and say, how beautiful each note, each song. Such scales of suffering. No one can weigh them. She says, how beautiful each smile, each footfall, each startled face in the heat of love. I've got one translation in this book. I'm, I'm very interested in translation. And often it seems to me that what we call translation isn't really so because people are not going back to the original text because they don't speak the language. They're going to a prose version and then they're creating their translation out of the prose version, which is perfectly legitimate, but it's not, not to my view of translation. I've always loved the poetry of Baudelaire. It was, he was one of the, the poets that very much influenced my teenage writing self, along with, um, later on, Ozit Mandelstam and Anakmatova. And I, I love Baudelaire, I love the rhythm of him. So this poem is a very, very free version, very free translation of his, uh, of his, his, his poem. And I'm, I'll just read a stanza of his so you can get the sound of it and then read my version, which probably sounds very different. Que diras-tu ce soir, pauvre âme solitaire? Que diras-tu, mon cœur, cœur autrefois flétri? À la très belle, à la très bonne, à la très chère, dont le regard divin t'a soudain refleuri. What will you say? What will you say, my soul, poor and alone, and my heart with its heart sucked out? What will you say tonight to the one, if she's really the one this time? To the very beautiful, to the very good, to the very dear? Ah, no. Speak clearly. What will you say to her, so good, so fair, so dear, whose heavenly gaze has made your desert flower? You'll say you've had enough, no more. You've no pride left but what goes to praise her, no strength left but in her douce power, no senses but what she gives. Sweet authority, douce power. Or do you mean you're shit scared to go anywhere without her? Is she your mother? Her look clothes us in light. Her ghost is the scent of a rose. Let her ghost dance with the air. Let its torch blaze through the streets. You'd like that, no doubt, when you've given up running after her. Her ghost will issue commands to do what you've already done. It's over with you. If she won't feed you, you must stay hungry. 
She is your guardian angel, your bodyguard. No one comes close. You can't love anyone. He's a, he's a fantastic poem. You cannot do justice to him because the sound texture is so rich and that's the problem with translation, I think, getting something across. But there's something about his, his boldness with language that I wanted to capture there and, his, and the impassioned, almost reckless tone of voice that he has, which I find hugely, hugely appealing. Now, Angela has pointed out to me that there's a very large clock which tells the exact time, and that's the one that I've got to watch, so I'm, I'm just squinting towards it now. This is going back to the boats and to the invocations, which are, I suppose, the core of this book. And in the house in which I live, it's a rather unusual house that is actually bolted into a cliff with enormous steel bolts that run right into the rock. And we hope that as they are tightened to the right tension, every so often people go and have a look and make sure they are holding tight. Um, but so it has a, a feeling of almost like being a bird in a nest. And you look out over the water. And there's, there's, there's a lot of balconies and a lot of terraces all the way down. So this is the kitchen balcony. And if you, if you know the place, you probably know exactly where it is, actually. Come out now. Come out now and stand beside me. Grasp the rail as the swell lifts you above the inky, innocent city, which has put away all but the whoop of an ambulance quickly suppressed, all but the chain of lights all but the chain of lights slung westward across the Mendips, all but the last cry of a drunk by the docks, the salt taste of a locked-out tide, the clipping hooves of a police horse. Come out now and stand beside me. I promise I won't look and won't breathe in too deeply the first smoke from the cigarette you have naturally lit. Here are only things you love. Look to your left, where the Matthew rears its cargo of flags, or where masts chink in the dark and a rat pours down a rope from bollard to boat. Come out now and stand beside me. Look at the swans asleep. Tell me gossip about Keats. Drink your drink and smoke your cigarette. Let me ask you all those questions. Or perhaps ask nothing. The gulls say dawn is coming, but I believe that they are wrong and the dark goes on forever. So come out now and stand here in shirt sleeves, although it's midwinter, quietly regarding water and stars. And this poem is for my daughter, who has a very lovely voice and has sung, sung in the choir for many years. And I really like hearing people sing when you can't quite see them, or when they think they're alone and they're just singing and the song just pours out of them. I heard you sing in the dark for Tess. 
I heard you sing in the dark, a few clear notes on the stairs, a blackbird in the cold of dusk, forever folding your wings and slipping, rustling down past leaves and ivy knots to where your song bubbled out of the crevices into cold, clear February dusk. <coughs> I heard the notes playing, rising to the surface of evening and then down again, almost chuckling in a blackbird's cold, liquid delight. And so I turned on the landing and you were gone. And I'm going to finish with um, the title poem of the book, which is The Malarkey. And I was very pleased to win the National Poetry Competition with this because it was entered anonymously. And a lot of people entered the competition. And also because, like Sophie, I have worked for a number of years in fiction and published a number of novels. And one question that people then ask you, which I don't enjoy hearing, is are you still writing poetry? Or even have you given up poetry? As if you could just decide, well, you know, I've had enough of poetry, I think I'll give it up, you know, like smoking. Um, and, but yet you almost begin to believe it. Or are people subtly saying to you, oh, you know, the poetry, uh, we're quite glad you're writing novels instead, you know. So, it's a very strange thing, that confidence. Um, and poetry is my, 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 my core, I suppose. It's the thing I do, um, and I hope will always do, and, and will be doing when I'm this very decrepit, invisible, almost dead person. Anyway, this is the malarkey. The malarkey. Why did you tell them to be quiet and sit up straight until you came back? The malarkey would have led you to them. You go from one parked car to another and peer through the misted windows before checking the registration. <coughs> Your pocket bulges. You've bought them sweets, but the mist is on the inside of the windows. How many children are breathing? The malarkey's over in the back of the car. The day is over outside the windows. No street light has come on. You fed them cockles soused in vinegar. You took them on the machines. You looked away just once. You looked away just once as you leaned on the chip shop counter and 40 years were gone. You have been telling them forever. Stop that malarkey in the back there. Now they have gone and done it. Is that mist or water with breath in it? Thank you.